there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Josh and Halt. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the term, you learn more from your failures than your successes. And in today's episode, Josh is living proof of that statement. Well, he successfully sold his business earlier this year, there were three failed attempts. And in this episode, John sifts through some of the wreckage of those failures to share with you the transferable lessons. Now, as a quick reminder for show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including definitions for some of the more technical terms used, be sure to visit Josh's episode page, which you'll be able to find over at builttosell.com. And without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode with Josh and Halt. Enjoy. Josh Anhalt, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to learn about Green Path. I don't think we have ever had a business like yours on the show. So describe what the kind of founding story is here. And remember that our listeners come from all different industries. So dumb it down for us. Explain what Green Path did. Primarily oil and gas producers, we detect, track, manage, and help them eliminate sources of methane from upstream, midstream, and downstream operations. Um, okay, so I know nothing about oil and gas, so you're going to have to forgive me here. So, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm just going to try to repeat back what I think I'm hearing. So yep. if I'm an oil and gas uh, company, I pull stuff out of the ground and, and turn it into bitumen and eventually oil for heating and gas and cars and so forth. I have pipes that take what I pull out of the ground to wherever I'm going to process it or the trains of the trucks that I'm going to put it on. And those pipes develop leaks. And if, if, if there's a leak, a methane gas leak, that has to be addressed because A, it's leaking and gas in the environment. B, it's probably smells bad. It's probably causing other issues. And so your company would detect these minor leaks before they became like catastrophic leaks. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, you bet. You know, imagine your house, your furnace. If it's a natural gas, hot water heater, furnace, you got a natural gas line going past the meter. The meter tells you how much you pay. After that, it goes to your furnace. All of a sudden, you're sitting in your living room and you, what's that gassy smell? You know, you call someone. And so the people that respond to the residential, we're the people to the industrial. How big did you get the company before you decided you wanted to sell? How big? Mm-hmm. Um, just north of $8 million, so about $8.2 million. Top line. Top line revenue. Got yep. it. And was there a trigger that made you want to sell or something that happened that like you know, like I think when you think like the Tony Robbins, you know, if you build it around purpose, every day is a great day. You, you know, it's not a job anymore. But I built things for a monetary purpose. You know, born, raised, poor, middle class. I wanted more for myself. And I knew, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, but Damn, does it make life easy? Like, it helps. But Josh, you got an $8 million business. I want to just nudge and push a little bit here. You got an $8 million business. Uh, I'm not sure how profitable it is, but I'm going to assume it was relatively profitable. Uh, Yeah. Yes. Why do you need to to sell? Why don't you just 
cream off the you know the profit every year. Two things that I'm afraid of in my business: a politician I don't know, and a technology that's yet to be unveiled. Yeah. We had made growth plans for our company to move into the United States, thinking Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president of the United States of America. And methane and climate change is going to explode USA. But we all know how that history book was written. EPA rescinded all regulations, things, backstops removed. That's the political side. When you work in the energy sector, it is politically driven. Those market forces are political. And they're based on election cycles and global geopolitical warfare, politics, policy, OPEC. And so, and then there's technology. I found a technology 17 years ago that could see gas. Now advanced today, there are now constellations of satellites. Their sole purpose is methane detection. You got fixed wing aircraft that can fly 800 square miles a day. Moore's law is in full effect. And so it's expanding. And so I'm seeing existential crises like on a daily basis going, we're sunk. Mm. We're sunk. I I judoed a lot of times thinking I'm sunk. Well, I'm like, every business still needs a last mile. Amazon needs UPS. They got to get the package to the doorstep. So even if that plane or the satellite finds gas, I'm going to be the company that goes the last mile and puts a finger on the problem and say, you put your wrench right there. So I started like taking that off my plate. But then I started looking at where regulation was going and the frequency. And I came to a conclusion. There's no point in history that methane is being talked about more than ever than right now. And the way that I'm doing business, so every time I hired a new field tech, it's a $300,000 investment. That camera quantification equipment, truck safety, training, health benefits, marketing, everything related to that. And I'm going, if I'm going to scale this, I can't, it's not infinitely scalable of how many people I can like scale on. That worked 15 years ago, but the market demand was capping the amount of people you could put out. Now the market forces are there to go, I could, spend $30 million, have 300 people, offices everywhere, and we go. But I looked at, we'd be, we're going to be blockbuster because Netflix is in the sky. So we need to consolidate down to have high gross margin, very highly technical people who put a finger on that problem and solve that issue. And so me looking at that, the market forces, headwinds that we're in, but I can still work within it. It's not talking more thing. I have a really profitable business right now. Basically, if you were to put um, a dollar in, you would get a dollar forty to a dollar fifty out of my company. Got it. So this, so this, this really helps me understand the the landscape and why you wanted to sell. I love the idea that 
you were afraid of a politician you don't know, and also the technology advances. I get it completely. And the black swan of what's around the corner, you're, you never quite know. But you built this great business, $8 million in revenue, $8.2 million. So what, what happens next? Did, like, did you market it? Did you hire an M&A professional? Did no. you do it yourself? Like, what did you do? I just started quietly shopping around. In, in the essence of if I knew someone that was in my space, I'd be like, hey, you know, like, this is a potential. And so over the course of three years, I fielded three acquisitions. And I landed on the fourth. And the first three are quite the journey. I mean, this is where I got my MBA. This is where I got all my lessons learned in how you exit. Networking capital adjustments due to shareholder. Um, like, Let's go through some of the. So, what did you learn from the first one? What was the biggest lesson you learned from the first failed acquisition? Tell the story. My first mistake in the first one, and I'll admit my mistakes, is I was steamrolled on the letter of intent. What does that mean, steamrolled? The letter of intent is basically how it defines the terms of the transaction two to four page document. That's how it's going to treat due to shareholder working capital adjustments. It basically is like, it's basically, if you have a really good letter of intent, you can take it to a lawyer. They can legalize it done. So my first mistake was not, was having an LOI that was not like that. I signed off before my lawyer could get all his hands on it and tear it apart. Why, what, why was that a mistake? Oh, there was so much risk in there. So like the terms of the deal, cash-free, debt-free, please provide me with the definition of that. Their definition of cash-free, debt-free was completely different of what my lawyer and accountant's version of cash-free, debt-free is. What was their version and what was yours? Oh, cash-free, debt-free? Um, we're going to use the... $2 million you have in your, in your bank account. And then we're going to use that as the proceeds to paying you out. No, that's not part of the deal. Uh, Debt-free that it could, they do some magical math. Bingo, bingo. There's a thing. Um, the, the next thing was there's a value, there's valuation. And then there's, so there's the amount that you're like, theoretically what your company's worth and what you're willing to get out of it, what they're willing to pay, and what you're guaranteed. And so the guaranteed amount was like $3 million. And so we had these earnouts in front of us that were like each earnout tranche was like Mount Everest onto itself. Josh, I want to go back to the, I want to go back to the LOI. So, um, so you're an $8 million business at the time. Yep. Did you have any sense of like, were you starting to formulate some idea of what you thought you might be worth on a multiple of EBITDA? Yeah. I, I was thinking, you know, I would be happy with like a four to five, three to five. Four to five times EBITDA. I'd be like, and now that would have been normal. And that's kind of like the range that people, it was more on the three to four side. Five would have been nice. Um and when they when the, when the original offer came through and they were offering uh, like uh, like a down a downstroke or basically like a cash payment and then you know future like what multiple of 
would that original like cash payment have been? I'm trying to figure out how bad this offer was. It sounds pretty bad, but I'm trying to. Yeah, no, like up front, like I was guaranteed about between two and a half, three, like 2.75 would be like in my pocket. Um, Potential earnout, um, if we hit all those tranches, um, would have been about $11 million total. So 11 minus the 2.5, we could have got there. Um, So their, their proposal is like, you know, 25% 25% down, 75% earn on the earnout, basically mm-hmm. for, for, yeah. for folks. And the other, the, this sounds like a terrible deal. The day I was to sign, I said, no, I texted them. I put a text and I asked one of my employees to hit send on the phone <laughs> and they hit send. And basically the text was, sorry, can't do the deal. I, I'm not answering my phone till Tuesday. <laughs> like, sorry, cost me money, cost them money. You know, like, hey, I, you know, there's been an $80,000 bill to go down this road. So the next legal fees and deal, fees and yeah, so yeah. next deal is another company here in town. And so a lot of the problems that we find for our clients on site, because we find leaks, we find problems. This okay. other company offers the solutions, like the hardware, the iron, the stuff. And so we got talking like, hey, they want to get closer to the problem so they could sell more product. Sure, peanut butter and chocolate. Sounds Perfect. Like yeah. yeah. They don't know how to, they've only bought like two companies in their entire life. They don't know how to do it. The way they want to structure it. And what to me is a good deal is first and foremost, it's good for the company. It's good for business. Second rule had to be good for the employees. Third rule, it's good for me as the owner. Now, the second deal, um, First deal is all three. It was bad. It's just going to be bad for them. Second deal, really good for me, but I'm certain if it's only good for the company and there was a lot of, we'll figure this out along the way. I'm like, no, I don't want to figure it out along the way. I want to figure it out now, please. Like, let's, let's not leave things to trust and fate. Two things that can quickly dissolve, evolve, or disappear. Did this second deal get to an LOI? It did. What multiple of earnings were they offering in the LOI? Same as the first deal. Same as oh, the- so same downstroke was kind of roughly two and two point seven five, and then lots on the on the yep. back end. Uh, a little bit different in the earn. So earnout was different. It was like, hey, we're going to just give you half up front, and then we're going to structure this payout along the way. So the earnout structure was way more palatable. But part of our earnout was some growth. And so we needed to move into some other markets, which included the US. They did not want to move into the US because they did not want to incur any tax liabilities on their company with operating in the US. So there was some issues there. And I'm like, well, first to achieve this, we need to do this. And the third is they wanted me to become an employee. And then the company would remain outside and I would manage that. So it'd be a separate, like its own entity still. So basically I would have the shelter and warmth of this great organization where it's nice and warm. And I would look out through the window out in the rain and I would see all my employees standing up there and being like, Hey guys, hope you're working hard and driving all the benefit this way. You don't get any of the luxuries over here. And it was that that I said, no, it's all in. It's got to be good for our employees. Like they have to be in here because they are the secret sauce to making this company and, and to work. To be clear, when you when you say they weren't 
benefiting. You were going to go work for the acquiring company. That's right. And you perceived that to be a much, much more luxurious type of role. Oh, like full stock studio. options, salary, okay. this, that, like health benefit, like the totally different structure than the way that my company, my company's structure was great, but there was like, there was a distance. And I'm like, why would I want to drive a wedge between two and like, let's, we got to fold this in. It's got to be one. And so basically, again, the 11th hour, Friday afternoon text, you know, it's not you, it's me. I can't do this. <laughs> the you, it's not you, it's me breakup. Yeah. Just to go back, I want to make sure I got the, I got this right, Josh. So they were offering, I think the first offer, uh, as I understand it, if, if you'd hit all the milestones in the earnout, uh, they were offering around 10 or 11 times EBITDA, but it, there was only about two or three times up front and the rest was this, cal- this calculation. In the second case, they were also offering you 10 or 11 times EBITDA, but no, in sorry. this case- it's- 10, 11, the total like cap, like dollar. Oh, and I see. Okay. EBITDA, yeah, was like a three to five based on, uh, on EBITDA. Okay, got it. And and they were saying we'll give you half of it up front and then half of it based on this earnout that's contingent on you going to the US and got it. Okay. That's helpful. So you thought good for you, better working capital calculation, but not great for the employees. No, terrible deal for the for the employees. They, it, 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 it would have sunk. There was a third <laughs> acquisition that went bad. I'm I'm getting the, the I'm getting a theme here. There's a pattern here. Oh my god. What was the third deal? I'm the guy on bring a trailer. That says no, bo- no, no, no ballers, no test pilots. I know what I have. Like, I have something you want. <laughs> so let's talk. Now, the third completely different route private equity. Private equity group came into town. They're doing a little road show. And I got invited to a very nice, smoothy, fancy dinner to go hear their pitch. And I listened to their pitch. And it sounded really good. They are building, and they are building, a very large portfolio of clean tech-based companies and businesses that they're going to roll up into a, a large portfolio and either sell it to the next highest bidder or IPO it. And so they had, you know, so when you look at this private equity firm, they are the high net worth families of Calgary and Houston and Oklahoma and area. Like these are the people that behind well, the gas, oil and yeah. gas that yeah. own the majority of the service companies. They own the business. So I'm like, not bad to be in business with the second richest man in Houston, third richest <laughs> man in Calgary. I'm sure they have a vested interest in my, you know, they want to yeah. return. So what was their offer? Similar to the other ones, but an opportunity on the upside. Like, hey, we can have a little bit of retained equity in the portfolio for future IPO, future uptake. So like, hey, like some skin in the game as part of like their growth strategy. They have a large capital war chest to go buy, acquire companies, structure things up, do some creative roll-ups, things like that. Um, so just to parse words, they were saying, we'll buy a proportion of your company, but we want you to roll some equity so that you participate with the other oil and gas service companies and we collectively sell the, the, 
combined. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Got um, okay. Again, things got dicey. Private equity, you know, I guess in my, my experience, they like to buy low with the plans to sell high. And so they take a very conservative approach when it comes to like, and even the other, like the first company, like when it comes to errors and emissions, like basically the small print when it says, if something's not quite true or you didn't tell us everything the truth, we have the legal authority to come back and scrape back on. So in the third deal, basically is was if they found something they didn't like, they could come back for the full amount, earn out amount, not what the cash they put in my pocket. So they, so for example, if they gave me $1 million, but the total deal was $5 million, let's just say. And somehow after the fact that they went, well, you don't tell me you are having a tax audit from the government. Oh, this sounds fishy. I'm going to want all my money back. And then some. Whoa. So all these deals, like, it's just like, they got all the upside and I was taking on a lot of the risk. So just to be clear, and these are called reps and warranties for my listeners that get the lingo, right? Yep. Uh, they were asking you to sign uh, like a rep warranty sort of uh, part of the share purchase agreement, which would basically say that in the event that something you promised or turned out to be false or that turned out to be not true, that they would uh, have recourse not only in the earnout but also the original amount that they paid you. So they could basically claim all of that back. Uh, am I getting that correct? Yeah. So here's wow. that. And then the, and there, there came up this pesky due to shareholder amount. And so their definition of cash-free, debt-free was basically using my own cash toward, like it was like, I'm just moving it from my left pocket to my right pocket. It's not- Same as the first deal. First of the same deal, like great for them. Yeah. And then the amount of money, you know, working capital they wanted left in the company we're like, you don't need that much cash to run this company. You know, you don't need two and a half million dollars sitting in the bank account. We can maybe, you know, with putting your head on your pillow at night, if we had $800,000 in the bank account, we have a great, like, although we got clients net 30 to net 60, we got cash flow that's coming in. We got a pipeline that's full. Like you're good. Like you're gonna be able to make make payroll. You're not gonna to have to dump any additional cash into it. But like a lot of the companies, they take this very conservative approach and they fight for every penny to be in that like working capital amount because I mean it's the upside to them. Well, the more we're sure. looking at it, the better. So you basically are establishing trust during the transaction. And this is where me having a really good accountant, like in-house, like controller. I don't want to call her a CFO, but she could talk legal. She could talk to the accountants. She could call them out, suss them out. She could give them all the forecasting models, absolutely everything they needed at the right time in the right place. And it was her that built comfort on the numbers. And when they were buying it, she's like, Josh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to just tell the story a different way, but. I've tried six different ways explaining to them and showing them and we just can't get there. And, uh, and so they were asking you to leave the the retained earnings, this couple of million bucks that you built up over the years yep. in the company. Dude, shareholder and, and the cash in the account. And it's like, no, like that's, yeah, that's that cash for ours. Sense. We okay. made that. So, 
So we say goodbye to private equity. <laughs> what happens next? When did you actually sell this company? So, May, so May 1st of 2023, we closed. We won a very large contract through like okay. an RFP process. Couple like very large deal. Like we, this is work from East Coast of Canada to West Coast of Canada and back and forth all the time. Okay. It's very large. Basically us winning that means someone lost. And the someone who lost called me and said, can we go for lunch? And I said, sure, I'll never turn down a free lunch, but let's just, you know, we'll do small chat and then let's talk, talk. And I basically took the last three deals and everything I wanted. And I just said, listen, want an EBITDA that's, you know, between a six to eight. I would like my due to shareholder amount to be recognized. A working capital adjustment that's normal. And he was like, he knew my business because he's in the exact same business. He knows exactly how much capital it takes to run. He knows payroll costs. He knows the, the cycles of the industry. And I, can, I said, these are all the things I want. Part of me was thinking that he'd come back and be like, ah, that's a really rich thing. But they came back and they said, yeah, well, we, we like this. We can do this deal. We'll make this happen. And I'm like, Okay. Hot damn. Okay. So how did they structure it? So what did they pay you on a multiple of EBITDA and how much of that was cash up, up front versus earn out versus equity roll, et cetera? Uh, just north of a seven EBITDA on earnings on EBITDA. Uh, approximately 90% cash, 10% stock. Um, and a lot of it on premise on EBITDA in which I firmly believe and I still add me, I am bullish on my business. The world needs us. There's not enough of us to go around. They have the technology. They have the people. We got the North American reach. They have, They are the U.S. market. I don't have to compete with them anymore. This year, we've been in Kazakhstan, Tunisia, Congo, Libya, Turkmenistan. Like we're gangbusters together. So they... Like other deals, they looked at us and they were always normalizing us backwards looking. I'm like, it's not about the past. It's about the future. This is future revenue. We're bringing you future opportunity, future revenue. And that was a mindset that I changed. Like we need to be forward looking on how we're making this business go. And I'm bullish and it's growing. And here's the numbers to support it, and the market drivers, regulations and everything. So we got a forward looking evaluation. Um, and because we were amalgamating into an existing entity that were direct competitors, um, there was no like hardcore earnout structure. They're like, we're just going to amalgamate you right in and we're going to push this forward. And we're, we're not going to be worried about whose book of business because we shared clients, we shared revenue. There would have been really like muddy, combative waters had there been like a earnout schedule, like, Hey, that's my revenue. Please give me 10% of that. No, that's yours. It was clean. And that's what I loved about the deal. The people running the show, they knew how to buy businesses. They know their business in. They're confident in themselves. They're confident in their business. They were confident in me. So they structured away. Um, the due to shareholder amount, they're like, yeah, that is that, that's yours. Uh, we came to a very fair um, uh, working capital adjustment. Uh, we had a very good time, you know, working through, you know, the liability section in the case of um, 
things were a little rich on the escrow indemnity amount. So basically 10% of the total deal would be held in escrow uh, for two years. Um, and basically those funds are used in the event of like a, a past liability coming to surface, you know, an HR issue or a, an audit or something that we didn't disclose. But the one thing I know about my company, my business, you can open any closets and there's no skeletons falling out. I've always opted. Risk is a circle, just a little off center, but nowhere. I'm, I, I'm squeaky clean. And I will always design my company to be squeaky clean so that I can always put my head on my pillow at night knowing that it's good. And that event of a business transaction, you get a good business. You get a solid business where it wasn't funding my lavish lifestyle. It wasn't paying for my wife's car lease. A business is a business and it's going to be producing cash. And so they recognized that I had it. By the time we opened up the deal, the time we closed was just shy of three months. And the benefit of the previous deals is I had a data room. I had already gone through and I had all the bank statements, liabilities, master service agreements. I had everything ready. And to anyone looking to exit, I would suggest right now, tomorrow morning, you open a data room. And that data room is your HR, is your financials, it's your statements. It's everything consolidated on a monthly basis. It's uh, liability assessments. It's insurance. It's everything all in one nice filed place. And every every month when that bank statement comes off, print it to PDF, drop it in the statement folder. When you get your insurance policy renewal, get it from PDF, put it in the insurance folder. Have your HR people keep a spreadsheet that tracks every employee, severance payment, tracking, pay stub. Put it in that folder. Make that your operating place. So in the event someone comes knocking on your door, you're ready. You're ready to have, because man, trying to find a master service agreement that's was a paper copy from nine years ago. <laughs> it's uh, Where is that? Becomes very tricky. So. Wow. So it sounds like, four times a charm in <laughs> your case, yes. um, an amazing outcome, uh, kind of got everything that you were hoping to get out of the deal. Um, are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Some, just some questions that requires a, a phrase or a sentence answer. Hammer away, my friend, hammer away. Let's do it. I feel like there's lots to choose from with this question, but what was the slimiest trick a potential acquirer tried to play on you the second one was mirroring me and they would hold their fingers in like a little triangle and hold it under their chin and they would mirror back to me and just like so let me hear this right you're concerned about it drove me nuts it was a slimy psychological make me feel comfortable situation i get it you're playing the good cop then they come back with a bad cop story that was the slimiest it was just the Gaslighting. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Biggest mistake 
you personally made during the process of selling your company, the thing that you would love to have a do-over on if you could do it all over again, in particular around the process of selling? Um, biggest mistake? Well, because I had gone through three, I'd made a lot of my mistakes on that one. And a little bit on the fourth is same, not the same mistakes. And the scale of snake was a lot smaller the fourth time. I would spend 90% of my time looking back on the letter of intent. I would, I would, I would not get lawyers involved until they actually need to draft the agreement. And I would spend 90% of the time working through the letter of intent on definitions, what, agreeing on definitions and getting that absolutely like ironclad and satisfied from both sides before getting to legal. Cause then at that point you can move quickly. Uh, those are my biggest mistake, my biggest mistake, not right. getting the LOI rate out of the gates or agreed upon. Yeah. Great. Uh, great advice for sure. What was, you know, I've heard selling a business is like an emotional roller coaster. What was the lowest point of the roller coaster for you emotionally? the first deal was saying no to a large amount of money that hurt because part of my goal going to the big was a money side the hardest part on the deal on this deal that actually closed was people connections i'm no longer the same like i don't have the same there's now different department managers that's that's the hardest part is there's you're still involved with the people, but that there's a it's different um, for good and for bad and for indifferent um, because companies are people and it's comp and people who've worked hard together and we still work hard together. But that's the part that it just yeah you, you can't be boss forever. My last question is, what did you do to, to commemorate the win? Did you buy yourself a trophy or some physical thing that you can touch and feel to remind yourself of this success? I had a really nice dinner with my wife. Um, so my kids, they don't know anything about this. As far as they're concerned, dad's working for a different company. They don't know the financial outcome. I had a very quiet, nice dinner with my wife. Um, the most extravagant thing I bought myself, I literally, the day that when the deal landed two weeks later, I was in three weeks later, I was working in Egypt for work. And while there I bought sight on scene, a nice BMW M340 to come home to, <laughs> to drive around. And that was nice. my very, very, very first time that I bought brand new vehicle for myself i bought brand new vehicles but always for work this was the first time in my life i bought a car with a brand new car smell in it that the imprint in the seat is now mine like 42 years old and this is my first brand new car that i bought myself so that was um it was time well, congratulations. I hope you drive it around Calgary with pride. I do uh, every day. And it always reminds me of yeah. incredible. 
Incredible story and incredible success. I, um, I'm super grateful for you sharing the story with me, along with some of the, the hiccups along the way, because I think that's how we all learn. So I'm, I'm super grateful for that. Josh, if people wanted to reach out to you, um, what's the best way to do that? Are you, are you on at all social? Like, do you, do you use LinkedIn? 100% or, LinkedIn. Or is there a better way for folks to? Uh, link, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay. Okay. Joshua, J-O-S-H-U-A. Anhalt, A-N-H-A-L-T. In my title, you'll see VP of Technology. We will put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes uh, at builttocell.com. Awesome. Josh, thanks for doing Thanks, Sean. Appreciate the time. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Josh. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And as a reminder, if you want to watch the full video interview you can head over to our YouTube channel at Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the full video podcast between John and Josh today. If you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttocell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Some of our best guests have come from nominations, and we would highly encourage you if you know someone to nominate them. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, you can visit Josh's episode page over at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.